This is the SFF Audio Podcast. I'm Scott. I'm Jesse. I'm Tamahome. Hi, and I'm Paul Malmont, the author of The Astounding, The Amazing, and The Unknown. I'm not from uh, Simon & Schuster, available everywhere. Uh, audiobooks are sold, and um, you can find me at paulmalmont.com or at pmalmont on Twitter. All right. Sounds good. I so, first heard of you yep. uh, a couple of years ago when you had a book out called uh, The China, uh, Chinatown Death Cloud Peril. Uh, right. That wasn't your first book, though, was it? That was my first book, yeah. Oh, it was. Uh, I, I was reading, you've got a book out coming about Maybe it's. I thought it was out already. About Jack London, which he's one of my favorite authors. Yeah, that's my second book that was out uh, about two years ago called uh, Jack London in Paradise, and um, it's also a very uh, uh, good book about uh, the last year of Jack London's life uh, when he was living in Hawaii and the circumstances of his early death at uh, the age of forty, and uh, you know he was also uh, kind of the the grandfather or one of the fathers of. Uh, Pulp writing, uh, which I wrote about in Chinatown, and again in The Astounding, The Amazing, and The Unknown. So, um, you know, uh, the the whole line of adventure writing kind of begins with him. So, um, you know, he's, it was fascinating to write about him. He wrote, he wrote uh, science fiction as well, not not a lot, uh, but he did. He wrote Iron Heel, one of his best novels, uh-huh. a speculative novel of the future, um, set you know 500 years from now, and kind of details the the collapse of the United States um, <clears throat> due to the rise of the uh, oligarchy. So, uh, well, very prescient and uh, very, prescient. Um, very, very prescient. <laughs> hey, what um, I, I was fascinated by, um, I read a, a Washington Post article that was a book review, and it said, you know, if uh, your current book, The Astounding, the Amazing, and the Unknown, is uh, set in World War II, and um, there's a basis in fact there. Do um, you mind telling us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, the book is uh, set in, in, like you said, 1943 in World War II, and um, it's a work of fiction, but it, it features uh, real-life Golden Age science fiction writers. Robert Heinlein is one of our heroes. Isaac Asimov is also uh, one of our protagonists, and uh, L. Ron Hubbard also is uh, features uh, prominently in in uh, the storyline. And um, it takes their real lives and intertwines them with uh, some fictional events that circulate, circle around the, um, the rumors of the Philadelphia experiment, which came out at the same time and place. And, and that legend is that a, uh, a ship disappeared from the uh, harbor uh, outside the naval yard and reappeared instantly in uh, Virginia and then vanished in a puff of green smoke and reappeared back in uh, Philadelphia, and you know the crew was driven mad, and uh, there was a huge government cover-up, and uh, whether or not it really happened is is totally uh, uh, up for uh, speculation. But it certainly is a great jumping-off point for fiction to put these real writers who are actually there uh, together with an event that may or may not have happened. So, yeah, it's a, it, it, they made a movie out of it, and I remember at the time thinking, well, th- this is weird, what a weird movie, and then I, I didn't realize that it was actually based on a, a pseudo-historical event. Um, I, I just thought, what a, what a weird idea for a movie, right? Yeah. 
But mm-hmm. uh, as a pseudo-historical event, it's, it's actually it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, and, and also as a cultural phenomenon, um, as a, kind of a thought meme that bubbles up, you know, the, the actual legend doesn't really begin until the 1960s. That's when people started talking about it. And uh, a book was, the first book was written sometime in the 70s. So it's interesting to, to track like how, um, how a phenomenon like that actually makes its way into the public consciousness if you track it back. Uh, through its mentions, it, it, uh, people weren't talking about it in the 40s or 50s. It's not until the 60s that uh, you really start to hear about this thing. Well, what but do you it, think you know, really you, happened? You, hold on. You talk about a legend, though. Um, is it factual that these um, authors were actually doing research for the government during World War II? Yes, that's actually the fact. They were hired... Um, John Campbell, the legendary uh, editor of Astounding and Unknown uh, Pulp Magazines, was approached by the Army uh, or the Navy to um, uh, put together a think tank of his best minds to help uh, um, make ships invisible to Japanese uh, kamikaze pilots. Uh, so uh, he put uh, he also wanted to keep some of his writers out of the war, and he knew that, you know, Isaac Asimov was never going to make it in, in, a, in a battlefield situation, and um, he had some other people, and he knew that Robert Franklin um, actually had been uh, uh, deferred out of the Navy because of tuberculosis and had an urge to contribute patriotically, uh, but wasn't able to. So he went to Heinlein, and together they put together the Kamikaze group and recruited um, Isaac Asimov, who was grateful not to have to go uh, fight, and Elspreg de Camp, who was a, a you know more of a fantasy writer than he was science fiction, but he was you know up and comer, and uh, he um, was an engineering had an, engin- an engineering degree, so he was also um, had practical abilities. And they were, uh, and they put together a, a group uh, out of Philadelphia, out of the Naval Yard there, that uh, um, was concerned with trying to uh, uh, accomplish some of these tasks. In the end, um, they didn't, uh, they didn't last uh, too long, and um, they uh, probably didn't accomplish all that much. But uh, uh, one of their achievements was a uh, uh, high speed, uh, high altitude. Um, Controller for airplanes uh, that made them uh, that wouldn't freeze up, and Isaac Asimov, who was a chemistry uh, PhD doctoral student at the age of 19, uh, when he was that smart, um, helped uh, work on a, a created dye for sailors who were uh, washed overboard or pilots who were who crashed at sea uh, to help make them more visible to spotter planes and spotter ships. Well, that's fascinating cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's such a great uh, nexus of uh, people. Yeah. Uh, using orange knee-high, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've never had a knee-high. Do they still make it? Yeah, I think it's out there. Wow. I, 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 I wanted to ask you, um, what do you think happened? Uh, I mean, one of the other events in the book uh, is uh, the Tunguska event is is referenced, and and I've read other books, uh, fiction books, with um, with the Tunguska event being explained in different ways. But I, I thought the one that's in this book, uh, or potentially in this book, uh, was pretty impressive. Uh, and and uh, it snuck up on me. It's, you know, yeah, there's Nikola Tesla doing his stuff. And then 
Oh, yeah, that gear does line up, doesn't it? <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, the Tunguska events, like, uh, it's another one of those things. It's a, an amazing, interesting phenomena that yields, uh, you know, a lot of different theories. I think the, the prevalent theory is that you know, it was probably uh, an asteroid explosion or a comet uh, explosion over that area of Siberia. But there, there's been a persistent rumor for many years that uh, uh, it was Nikola Tesla's fault. And um, since I was exploring um, electromagnetic phenomena, and, um, which was allegedly part of the um, uh, Philadelphia experiment, that quickly leads to Nikola Tesla's work. And then from there, when you start to examine you know, the weirder aspects of, of his work, and, and almost everything he did was weird. So this, this rumor kind of bubbles up about um, the Wardenclyffe communication energy tower he was building on Long Island and uh, the um, incident in, in uh, Siberia. So uh, um, that uh, rumor is what actually uh, propels the plot of the astounding, amazing, the unknown. The, the team at, at Philadelphia is asked to research the possibility that Nikola Tesla blew up uh, part of Siberia with this uh, communications tower that he had built years earlier and that uh, uh, they have reason to believe the Nazis might be interested in. Hmm. And awesome. I, oh, sorry. I was going to ask you, is there, any, is there any unbelievable science in this book or is it all uh, plausible? Um, you know, like I said, it's, it's historical fiction, so I try to be as plausible as, as I can be. I actually tried, to, since I'm not very smart, I tried to stay away from trying to describe, like, hard science or, you know, how the mechanics of a death ray could work. But it's all based on um, the, the research that I did on uh, that Edison has done and uh, Tesla did and, and uh, other, other people have done, you know, uh, Within the realms, it's within the realms of plausibility. How's that for, a, for an answer? Okay. <laughs> they, they actually have this book in the fiction section. I was surprised it wasn't in the science fiction section. Yeah, well, think, uh, it is being um, uh, marketed as a mainstream literary because it is, um, it is more mainstream fiction and historical fiction than it is um, science fiction. I mean, it yeah, it, it's it's it seems exactly like historical fiction to me. Um, it's just that because it's got all these science fiction characters or not characters, science fiction writers, um, it 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 becomes like um, meta science fiction or something like that. Right. I mean, I the, the, it's definitely about who they were and about you know their hopes and dreams and you know what they achieved and what they hoped to accomplish and their relationships. Um, more so than it is about um, any science fiction kind of plot device from McGuffin. That just happens to be the overlay that lets me tell, you know, kind of a tribute story to to, to these people who were, you know, so uh, profoundly influential on on me and pop culture and the world we live in. So. Well, one, of, one of the people who... Oh, sorry. I'm going to say, yeah, this all sounds great. I was just wondering if you could talk real quick. So, so you have a book that's got Jack London in it, and you've got this book that has these folks in it. Who is in um, the Chinatown Death Cloud Peril? Sure. Chinatown Death Cloud Peril um, <clears throat> takes place a few years before this. takes place in 1937, and it features uh, Walter Gibson, who created the Shadow 
uh, character uh, under the name Maxwell Grant, and um, Luster Dent, who created Doc Savage under the mm-hmm. name Kenneth Robeson. And uh, it's about their rivalry, and um, it puts them on a... The, the death of H.P. Lovecraft puts them on a path to uh, discovering... Um, uh, uh, a threat from China that's emerging in, in Chinatown. And that also features uh, L. Ron Hubbard and Robert Heinlein in smaller roles um, because, you know, at the time, it was uh, 1937, the hero pulps led by the Shadow and Doc Savage really were the, the most popular form of the genre of the medium. And uh, by 1943, when a new book is set, uh, science fiction has just become so ascendant and so popular that it's marginalized almost everything else on the pulp newsstand, uh, including the shadow on Doc Savage, who kind of had to adapt to take on a more science fiction-y role um, to become to keep up. So Walter Gibson and Lester Dent make appearances again in this book, but they are not um, the uh, the leads as they were in Chinatown. Right. So uh, thematically, they're part of the same. Uh, story arc, but um, the new one, The Astoundingly Amazing Unknown, it's not really a, a sequel per se. You don't need to read the first book to to uh, enjoy this one. Well, great. I, I wanted to mm-hmm. ask about uh, L. Ron Hubbard. I, I thought, uh, you know, when you when you first introduced him, uh, he's he's in trouble. He's being court-martialed, and and then uh, and then later on, he's sort of he's sort of redeemed. At least uh, I'm pretty close to the end of the book, so he's 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 it's it's almost like he's being redeemed, even though he's he's got all these unlikable qualities to his personality. Um, you know, he's 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 sort of trying. He's like a tragic Greek hero or something. Uh, did, did, does <laughs> did his fiction influence his his depiction of himself in in this? Well, I guess not depiction of himself. Your depiction of him in this in this story. Uh, well, Hubbard is, I can't, I can't give it away because you haven't finished it yet. Right, so, yeah, don't, uh, don't spoil it, but. I can't tell you where it goes, but, um, you know, my, my depiction of Hubbard is based on a lot of different sources and a lot of different, uh, but kind of an analysis of, like, who he may have been. And I think his, you know, uh, his greatest work of fiction was the life that he, you know, created, that he, <laughs> that he lived. Yeah. Um, you know, the. The thing about him is that, um, the, for example, in this incident in, in during World War II, the World War II years, he said he was off doing these uh, amazing, having top-secret adventures in the South Pacific. Mm-hmm. The Navy said, you know, he was court-martialed and in and out of hospitals, complaining of ailments and whatnot, and, and uh, was relieved of uh, active service duty because he shelled Mexico and spent days chasing a submarine that wasn't there. So between, uh, you know, what he said and what they continue to say he did and what the Navy says he did, uh, there's a place in there for fiction to play that lets both sides kind of be true. Yeah, that's right. And, um, but also, you know, uh, shows, you know, kind of puts him on the, the road to uh, where he ends up uh, creating... Uh, Dianetics and and this uh, very weird atomic age um, philosophy religion thing. So, yeah, there, there's even a volcano involved, isn't there? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I thought that was fun. Um, uh, other other aspects that kind of surprised me. Uh, 
I guess you know Virginia Heinlein. Is, did she really work at the uh, that that place? Is that where he met her? Yes. Wow. Uh, yeah. Watch. Well, she, she wasn't Heinlein at the time, but uh, oh. um, Isaac Asimov's wife. Uh, I, I and he must have remarried too because it wasn't his last wife uh, Janet Asimov? Right. But he was married to Gertrude for uh, decades, and he had his children with her. Uh huh. Yeah, I thought I thought like uh, we get a, we get a little bit of Isaac Asimov at the typewriter, and I think he he starts a, a the robot felt, and then right. and then later on in after he's had some experiences, he can finish the story, right? Um, and I thought that was it, it's it, you tried to sort of I think inject a little bit of the of the fiction. I mean, this is probably how all fiction works, right? Is is that the writer has an experience and says, "Aha, I'm going to put this in a story." So you've you've reverse engineered it so that you've got a story about a robot and Isaac Asimov is the robot, right? Right, exactly. You know, there's a certain you know, I, I'm not going to try to create or recreate a an Asimov story or a Heinlein story. You know, those things are out there. You can go read them. Those mm-hmm. guys, you know, did what they did. They're the best at what they did. I'm just trying to, you know, explore their creative process a little bit, or or even my creative process, or anybody's creative process. Uh, because I'm just so fascinated at how these things are, are willed into creation and how we do this. And um, so it's, uh, it's interesting through uh, a character to try to, to watch the, the act of creation take place. And, and one thing that was fun for the, uh, uh, the book release, we actually held a contest and asked people to finish that story, to write the story that began with the robot felt and ended with, uh, in the end, the robot felt nothing. He was <laughs> yeah. And uh, we had uh, over 100 entries uh, through the website, and uh, we had a winner, and the winner's going to get published in the, the paperback version. Oh, nice. Oh, that's yeah, cool. <laughs> but it, it was fun to, to have other people explore, especially because they had, the book wasn't out yet, so all they had were the, the, the first sentence and the last two sentences, to, and they had no idea what else they, uh, you know, was going on. So it's funny that the winner, and the winner was selected by... Uh, social network voting, and then five, uh, some judges uh, picked the winner. And um, the the winner actually, you would think it was kind of written for the book, even though the writer hadn't read the book at the time. Oh, wow! <laughs> that, that is actually pretty surprising. Uh, so, so are you, are you using a lot of like are you getting a lot of uh, contacts through social networks to get word out about the book? Yeah, I'm trying. I mean, you know, uh, there's a lot of um, just like in, on the bookstore shelves themselves, there's a lot of competition for, uh, you know, social network time. Um, and uh, it's not the, uh, I mean, just because it's uh, a cheap mode, mode of communication doesn't mean that it's always effective, uh, you know, the, the best way to, to get out there. You know, uh, I do what I can to, to try to to reach people and keep in touch with people and engage, you know, some, some new people. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's still the old-fashioned way of, you know, uh, uh, reviews still matter, word of mouth still matters, things like this podcast interview, they, they matter uh, uh, more so than just me tweeting or throwing out a, a status update on Facebook. Absolutely. I, mm-hmm. I don't even have a Facebook account. But uh, I think I think your publisher uh, contacted us um, Asking if was if we were interested in the interview, and because I had read um, the previous book, I was actually pretty interested. Um, and uh, I think I think I would have been reading this whether you had uh, uh, 
been on the podcast or not, just because I, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this, uh, you know, all the connection. You, you really developed a world out of all the, 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 the characters there. there we, we were talking before the podcast started about how there, there are characters I didn't recognize that are in there that other people have recognized, like Frank Herbert makes an appearance. Uh, that layer, that layering. Uh, I mean, uh, when I, when I started doing a little bit of research online afterwards, uh, I guess it was yesterday. I, I, I was listening to a, a part about uh, L. Ron Hubbard's in the Aleutian Islands, and I was, oh yeah, that's that's a big surprise. And then they're talking about Japanese as it had invaded up there, and I thought, oh yeah, they had. And then they mentioned uh, Canadians were in taking back, and I was, oh yeah, they were. I forgot about that. It's it's a uh, it's 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 really it's set right at the time that the it, it, you you you're not like forming the story out of out of um, a plot that you brought in. It's it feels very much like it's spontaneously generated and could have been. I mean, I don't want to get a little bit spoilery towards the end, but um, one of the revelations about you know the uh, the uh, project in New Mexico uh, is that this group. And and the, the the New Mexico project, you know, we're talking about Los Alamos, um, and the uh, the people who are in the 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 Kamikaze group are kind of doing the same thing, but one of them is public and one of them isn't. Yeah, they keep bumping up against uh, the Manhattan Project. And I, I'm wondering, do you think, uh, like, do you think that that's actually part of why Heinlein was hired? because he was a more public figure? Because that's kind of your implication, at least where I am in the book. And I, like, that's a really interesting idea. Do you have any uh, historical evidence for that, or is that just a spontaneous thesis that came out uh, in the writing? That's just a spontaneous thing that came out in the writing. Like, uh, just um, you, You'll see where that goes by the time you get to the, uh, the end. But, you know, uh, when I was trying, when I realized that uh, one of the themes of the book at least as far as the characters were concerned, was um, where does science end and science fiction begin, that I have these parallel tracks of these writers who have been hired to come up with fantastic solutions. Uh, and meanwhile, there was a group of real scientists also working uh, on a even more fantastic uh, weapon than, than any of these guys really, uh, well, it's not true that they didn't uh, imagine it, but... Uh, that they imagined that, that could be built at the time, and that through some of their connections, there was actually, you know, that, that they would have possibly bounced into each other every now and then during uh, the course of the, the real events. I mean, one of the subplots in the book is uh, the story of Cleve Cardinal, uh, who was a pulp magazine writer, a science fiction writer, and lower tier. I'd say he's like a, a, a double-A ball player compared to the major league. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, John Campbell has challenged him to write a story about how to, you know, using the research that was available at the time, the data that was available in um, libraries and magazines, how would you construct a story that used uh, the splitting of an atom and creating a weapon out of it as uh, a story? So... Cardinal wrote a story called Deadline that really was like laid out kind of in broad terms how to make an atomic bomb. And it was so close to uh, the real work that was going on that 
um, the uh, FBI got involved, and uh, you know that that subplot um, of where at the time when uh, uh, science fiction and, and science really uh, uh, ran afoul with each other makes up a, a key component of the book, and, and later it comes out um, that Robert Heinlein was actually suspected and um, uh, somewhat accused of, of uh, having been uh, doing, you know, providing treasonous information uh, mm. from his work in Philadelphia. So, um, you know, it's very interesting how these paths cross in reality and, and that I'm able to, to explore in fiction. It's amazing stuff and astounding. Yeah. And I'm, <laughs> I, I guess the ending's unknown to me because I'm finished it yet. But. Yeah, this is all fascinating. I, I was just curious, did... In, in back in the 40s and late 30s, would the average person know who Robert Heinlein was? Um, no, I think it was, uh, you know, uh, very much a, uh, a genre form. Of, now, Pulp Fiction was, uh, and Pulp Magazines were still extremely popular at the time. Um, I think I remember a figure from my first book that uh, on a monthly basis, it might have been 10 million magazines sold in 1937. Oh. you got to remember, a lot of magazines, and they were cheap, and, uh, you know, the, 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 there weren't as many claims on forms of entertainment at the time. There were movies and there was some radio, but not everybody had a radio player. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there, I'm sure Heinlein was, uh, well-regarded within certain circles. But the, the thing about him that's kind of interesting is that he was the first, later on, he would be the first to um, break out of the pulp magazine uh, basement, more or less, and become like uh, a respected, you know, hardcover, um, best-selling author and make, uh, you know, um, The Green Hills of Earth was published in... I think the Saturday Evening Post or Collier's, mm. uh, uh, you know, one of the glossy magazines, and it was soon after that that he, you know, started publishing um, well in hardcover. So uh, by the, you know, certainly by the 50s and 60s, he was he he would have been famous. But uh, in 1943, I think he's still uh, called famous. Mm. Gotcha. Very interesting. It, it kind of reminds me of uh, Tim Powers' book, where he takes like twenty weird true things and then he strings them together and tries to make it all flow. Mm-hmm. I'm not familiar with those. Oh yeah, like mm-hmm. like even the the book that was the basis for the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean movie. A lot of that stuff in the book is actually true. Like there was a black beard, and he did take some historical true things and string them together. And other literature, yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, actually, what what uh, it reminded me most of is a Canadian TV show called uh, Murdoch Mysteries. Actually, there's there's an episode with Edison and Tesla uh, fighting fighting for the ACDC wars, I guess. Um, and uh, that show often will take a historical character and bring it in, and they they have some sort of very much historical based mystery. Um, so, example would be H.G. Uh, Wells shows up, and um, uh, something like uh, the Island of Doctor Moreau would happen, right? Uh, or um, 
uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and he and and Conan Doyle was really into fairies and what was it, uh, spiritualism, right? So there'd be some spiritualist mystery, very very um, remixing the 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 modern history. Modern historical fiction seems to be something that's uh, becoming popular. It used to be, you know, we'd get medieval stuff or we'd get, um, you know, 200, 300 years ago. But now this, I mean, this is the most modern historical fiction that I can think of that that wasn't, you know, political based, you know, right. like with, you know, Nixon or something, something like that. Uh, are you reading a lot of historical fiction? Is this uh, uh, a big big new trend we should be watching out for? Um, I don't read a lot of, you know, that, that's not outside of the research that I'm doing, because these, these books take a tremendous amount of research, so I'm always, like, uh, digging and looking. Um, and uh, and then usually when I'm reading something, I'm, I'm just trying to catch up on stuff that friends have written or things that, you know, friends are recommending. So um, it's actually been a while since I've had the time to sit down and, and read a novel, and I think the last uh, thing I read uh, novel-wise might have been um, the second Ian Banks culture novel, and I read that back in February, because uh, everyone's been talking about Ian Banks for so long, I figured I'd better find yeah. out what they're talking about. So. I think I probably need to do that, too. <laughs> right. So, um, and then... Uh, uh, as far as you know, the, the trend of historical fiction um, in in popular culture, I think it's just uh, you know it's so fun to do because it's so rich. And you know, at least I know, and from my point of view, it's like a, a way that I get to kind of have some of the fun that these you know pulp writers might have been having when they were creating these characters or writing about you know rocket ships for the first time and. Uh, so um, you know, and mashups are fun. Mashups are popular. It's fun to yeah, fun to work with you know things that we know and and uh, um, you know uh, it, it's cool when fiction brushes up against uh, reality. You know. Well, I'm I'm just glad this one doesn't have a have a lot of zombies in it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm I'm glad we get a remix with no zombies unless there's some at the end. had zombies in it though. So. Which one? Chinatown had the head zombies in it. Did it? Uh, yeah. I, I didn't get that far, I guess. <clears throat> I, I got, I got uh, Lester Gibson, uh, I think, was reading, uh, I can't remember. There's uh, Lester Gibson. Uh, speaking of Lester Gibson, um, I, I posted a really interesting um, interview with him that TVO did, TV Ontario. Have you seen okay. that? No, I don't think I've seen that. Oh, I'll send you a link to that. It's, it's really interesting. It, he, he gets about half an hour of um, screen time. It's, it was recorded in the 1980s, and he talks about his his work schedule and his massive ability to put out content within, you know, he, he would get so far ahead of the magazines. Uh, it's a, you, you put a lot of that in, in you know, uh, the little details into the book. Right. Yeah, well, Walter Gibson was, you know, a great character, and um, definitely the fact that, uh, you know, he, he he wrote so far ahead of himself that he actually, uh, you know, put himself kind of out of business for a while because there was so much Walter Gibson stuff out there that uh, he didn't they didn't need him to actually write it. I find that stuff kind of fascinating, you know, that uh, he could write so much. I think it's uh, like exploring the kind of person that. You know, he held uh, the world record for most words typed on a 
Smith Perona typewriter, and they used that in advertising for uh, a number of years. Um, you know, what kind of person is compelled to to write that much? I mean, at, at a certain point, it's not about how much money you're making um, or being paid by the word. There's something else driving you. So, um, you know, I find that real interesting to explore character-wise. Yeah, I, I think th- I think that does work pretty well. Yeah, and Walter Gibson also knew so much. He was such a smart man about weird things like magic and you know uh so if you one place that i've seen him people send me links to our uh old um in search of episodes uh, that um do you guys remember that show? yeah that's the leonard mm-hmm. nimoy show yeah the leonard nimoy uh show walter gibson will show up occasionally as um you know a talking head on that because he'll know some aspect of this weird thing that they're exploring on the show it's fun stuff. Mm-hmm. I, uh, did he write the radio show too? The Shadow Radio Show. For for a little while he did. He wrote a couple episodes before the before the Orson Welles versions. He uh, uh, wrote a couple of the Orson Welles versions, but then um, uh, those were taken over. Uh. Okay. Well, uh, we're probably getting pretty close to your end end time here, so. Uh, I'd, I'd like to thank you very much for having us uh, have a chance to talk to you. Uh, it's been great. You know, um, questions were awesome, and, uh, you know, I really appreciate getting the chance to talk to you guys and your, your reader, your listeners about, um, you know, uh, the Italian Amazing and the Unknown. I think it's a, it's a cool uh, book, and I think, uh, you know, it's great for... Uh, the perfect thing to pass a, a hot summer August uh, couple of evenings with. So. I'm gonna I'm gonna finish before uh, end of July, but uh, I will pass uh, pass pass this on to other people. And in August, I'm sure lots of people will be picking it up. So yeah. It's a fun book. Excellent. Right. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.